0: For 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Khreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan, your co-host. I'm not here with Emily Jane Fox presently, but I'm here with a very important person. A rookie to the podcast, but not a rookie to the Hive as she is technically my boss, Miriam Elder, executive editor of the Hive. Welcome.
0: Hi Joe, longtime listener, excited to be a first-time participant.
2: I just want to say, quickly introduce you, Um, you uh, came to The Hive last year, and you had previously had a whole incredible uh, career leading up to it, and uh, maybe you can tell us just quickly where you came from, kind of, you uh, have been in the news business, you're a veteran, you know uh, the news world, so tell us a little bit about where you came from.
0: Well, most recently before joining the fabulous team at The Hive, I was at BuzzFeed News for seven years, where I started their foreign desk and then was a political reporter for a year covering uh, Trump's re-election campaign, his failed re-election campaign. Uh, Before that, I won't go into the details, but I spent uh, much of my career abroad, uh, mainly in Russia, where I was for another seven years, uh, charting the rise and rise and rise of Vladimir Putin. And now I'm here with you.
2: Wow. That bizarrely gave you a preview of kind of some of the politics that we now have in our own world, which you would never probably would have expected.
0: Well, I I always told people, you know, a part of the reason I left Russia is because I felt like I had been there for so long and I was ready to move on. And of course, I landed in a country that suddenly became first obsessed with Russia because of uh, Donald Trump, and then, yes, has been enmeshed in the sort of disinformation, toxic uh, culture war politics that was so prevalent
2: over there. Lucky me. And just as an aside, uh, I was recently um, kind of uh, quoted in some article because Rolling Stone magazine, which I've written about in my life, I wrote a biography of Jan Winter, uh, but Rolling Stone's been revamping. And they were talking about all the radical transformations that they're going to be doing over there. And the way it sounded to me was just like they were turning it more close to BuzzFeed. You know, it's like all the websites have um, had to become like BuzzFeed in some way. The BuzzFeedification is that a word? The BuzzFeedification of, <laughs> uh, you know, all the news outlets in our world. And, you know, there's a lot of cliches about that. It's all like clickbait or things get shortened and it becomes more um, it's very quick paced and there, people's in people's imagination, there's like a um, warehouse full of underpaid drudgery oriented workers like churning it out. Maybe you can disabuse people of like that. you know, there's give us a little bit uh, just from an experienced editor in the modern world. What does the modern, you know, news website like The Hive, of which there are others, in you know, similarly oriented, look like, really. And and when people think that the journalism is like, you know, I've been asked by young people, like, oh, how do I get into this business? And what do I do? And what's it going to be like? Well, I have, I'm the last person they want to talk to because it's radically changed since I was their age, let's just say. But what, tell us like what, the pros and cons of the world we live in now is, uh, in terms of the the news media and how it works from behind the scenes?
0: I mean, I think it's, it's a huge question. It's also a really interesting time to be uh, asking that question. Um, let's put like political journalism exclusively to the side, but I think there's a lot to uh, get into there. But I guess it depends what you mean by the buzzfeedification of uh, the media. My philosophy when I was there, and it's the way that I think about reporting on, you know, in the internet age uh, more broadly is there's, you know, there's two kinds of stories that do best. One is if you're first and you have a crazy piece of news and you push it out there, or if you're definitive, which I think is a lot of the work that you do. People still want deeply reported stories, particularly in this time of utter chaos that we're living through because of the toxic politics in the country, because of the pandemic, because our lives are changing daily <laughs> before our eyes, um, that I think there is still a huge demand for deep, beautifully written, wonderfully reported stories. I think what you know what the internet has done in a good way is kind of push reporters to cut out maybe some of the more like repetitive coverage and try to be really distinctive, I think in the best of worlds, it can push people to be their best. Because back in the day, you had a subscription to the New York Times or, you know, the Miami Herald or what have you, and you'd got all your news from there. And now it's just uh, this kind of constant competition uh, that you see online to really, to really stand out. And, you know, when I was at BuzzFeed, I would always take issue with the term clickbait. Or clicks when i was talking to people about joining us they would always ask do you really care about clicks and i would say that that's it's a really bad way to think about your readers if you spend like 2 months on a story 4 months on a story you want as many people as possible to read it you don't want it to just sink you've put in so much work as a reporter as a writer So, yes, you can call it clicks or you can call it (laughs) readers. And I think the goal is always to reach, you know, the audience that you would as much of the audience that you would love to be reaching. You should be reaching with your stories. It it makes people think a lot more about the other end. You know, we're not just sitting in a quiet room writing. We're we're writing for people.
2: Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, and one of the impacts over the last few years is like there's much more value placed on voice in some of the writing you can get your straight flat news delivery from uh your new york times but uh you know a lot of the other outlets can offer different points of view and voice and all the things that we know and so that's why uh so this podcast is an extension of that to the degree that you and i are going to use our voices to uh we're gonna we're gonna have opinions (laughs) Uh uh-oh Three, two, one. Political Breakdown
1: is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer.
3: And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024
0: is going to get weird.
1: Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not?
0: We're still in the
2: innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together.
1: (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Have you heard about Mint Mobile? Do you know what it's all about? Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those savings right on to you. I've been using Mint Mobile for weeks, and I've been impressed both by the quality and by the price. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can choose from 3-, 6-, or 12-month plans and say goodbye to a monthly phone bill. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash hive. That's mintmobile.com slash H-I-V-E. Cut your monthly wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash hive. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
1: The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation.
2: I want to talk about whether the Democrats are totally screwed are they just totally screwed right because i wake up in this morning i watched the world series last night to try to avoid the election stuff and uh that was fun i just like watching the pitchers because they have weird windups and it's all the weird ticks it's all i realize the whole game is ocd right it's just all ocd <laughs> people doing different kind of like patterns to like get ready to hit the ball or get ready to pitch and everybody's spitting and rubbing their ears and it's great uh, but then I woke up this morning and it's like uh, the Democrats are um, were crushed and it's all because of critical race theory. So um, <laughs> let's talk about just Virginia right now and Terry McAuliffe. My first feeling, honestly, was that Terry McAuliffe, even before this election was really even underway and I knew he was running for governor, I was just like, ugh, you know. He's like, just seems like a hack from the Clinton times. And I can imagine that there's all kinds of reasons he could have lost that had nothing to do with even the issues, right? Um, but what was your sort of uh, take when you woke up this morning and saw what had happened? What In, in your own sort of gut analysis, What in, in your, you know, brilliant analysis, what, what did you think?
0: I mean, I wish that there was like one line, one smooth line to encapsulate it all. But I think your observation of like, ugh, to Terry McAuliffe actually speaks to something that's pretty important here, which is there is this huge drive right now to gather gigantic sweeping national implications as a result of this race. And there are some to be made for sure. But as you know, like local races local politics matter. Um, And I think that there wasn't a lot of excitement around him, just as you (laughs) so beautifully uh, portrayed. Um, But uh, there's, you know, there's a bunch of takeaways. One of them is you can't separate this from Joe Biden's sinking poll numbers. And a lot of this was probably a vote against the way things are going in Virginia, um, we're in the middle of this pandemic. You have rising prices. You have you know issues with jobs. You have this uh, Build Back Better plan that seems to be a ginormous mess uh, that they can't get past. You know you hear this often, but I think it's true. Democrats present themselves as like the party of government, and they have to prove that government can do something useful for people and what's happening in D.C. didn't help. Um, And then, of course, you know, on the Republican side, you had a candidate who both tapped into parental grievances, parents who are pissed off with uh, the way the school closures have been uh, handled for a year and a half, um, who tapped into white grievances then as well um, with all the critical race theory stuff. And you had a guy who balanced his approach to Trump, who like accepted his uh, who accepted Trump's endorsement, but was not out there to a relatively like moderate Virginia electorate being like MAGA, yeah, Trump 2024. So, you know, there there are I think the the, for me, the biggest takeaway is uh, if Democrats uh, want to think about the midterms um, in a sharper way, they have to figure out what they're offering to the to the electorate, really, because just running against Trump and against the specter of Trump is not enough.
2: Well, that's interesting you say that, because, you know, the last time we had um, an election a state election a few months ago, it was really the recall, the Gavin Newsom recall. The big national takeaway was if you're like gonna be a an you know a wackadoodle Larry Elder Trumper, you're gonna lose and that's good for you know, so good, go for it. Run like a Trumper and Democrats will will uh, will win. And um, like you said, this guy kind of threaded the needle to some degree. And also the mistake on Terry McAuliffe's part, it seems like to me, was to Take the bait on the critical race theory thing and try to counter-accuse him of being some kind of like Dixie racist, and I I do wonder whether you know the accusations of dog whistling to racists and that seemed to be all that they had in the bag there. And you're right about the Joe, everything tied to Joe Biden. I asked um, Matthew Dowd, who's running for lieutenant governor of Texas, did he feel like you know that his fortunes were tied. To Joe Biden. And and he kind of danced around that. But clearly they are, you know. And, you know, I guess uh, when I was writing some notes to you about what we might talk about on this podcast, I said just Joe Biden, WTF. I mean, what is happened, what has happened to, you know, how the hopes have been crushed from what we were thinking just eight months ago could be possible, right? And the fact that Democrats can't get, can't get it together, and we've been talking about it on this podcast, but a lot but um, and we kind of all know why they're disagreeing. but um, I guess my question for you is, Joe Biden, uh, let's assess him for a second because if, 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 this, if these races are on some level a referendum on what's happening, is the analysis from the Ross Duthats and you know Brett Stevens that he's a complete failure? Is it too soon to say that?
0: I'll preface this by saying I don't think, you know, that the most important thing is that it's a referendum on Joe Biden. I do think local races, uh, first and foremost, like matter to the local environment. You rightly bring up California. We could also talk about the lessons people tried to draw from uh, the New York City mayor's race. Um, So, you know, local politics, first and foremost, in local races. But if we're going to talk about Biden um, in terms of high hopes and big failures, I think if we step back and try to look at the larger picture, which is this is a man who won the nomination because he was like fine, right? He was fine. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't um, some, you know, radical new direction for the party. He was someone who was uh, seen as having the, you know, the capability to beat Trump and would not screw things up royally. Um, So I'm not sure that he came in with a, gigantic vision. Of course, the Build Back Better plan is a gigantic vision. And I know you guys have talked at length about what's going on there and uh, and the role of, um, you know, people like Manchin and, and uh, Stemma in terms of, uh, of screwing that whole thing up. But he has done some things that are difficult. The withdrawal from Afghanistan is something that is, you know, widely supported. But People are still smarting from, in particular, the way it was done. I don't know that that's going to have a lasting effect, you know, in in uh, next year or in three years. I would put myself down as thinking that that's not going to have a huge stain among Democratic voters, for example, on his uh, on his reputation. But this is a guy who is governing in the midst of. First of all, a huge attack on democratic principles by um, by Republicans at every level of governance. It's a really poisonous time in our politics where everything is really shifting, you know, because of I really do think in part it's just the time that we're living through. Um, We're living through a revolutionary moment as huge as like the moment of industrialization or the moment of like the invention of the printing press, you know, Um, in terms of our. The evolution of tech and its effect on our politics and our daily way of life. And then throw on top of that a gigantic pandemic that is incredibly difficult to deal with and show me one national leader who has done it right. I'm not trying to defend Joe Biden that, you know, like he's doing great or whatever. It's just to put it into context of the challenges of governing in this time. And I don't know, personally, I just didn't have huge expectations for him. Again, he was like a candidate who was like, going to be okay, you know, like. Eh. Um, and obviously all the kind of bickering in DC, which is very uh, classic Democrat, you know, doesn't help him. It's a very, very tough time for him. I don't know if I would write him off uh, completely. Yeah, this, but I can I just moment.
2: say that, yes, he's a politician of the old stripe, you know, a, a machine <laughs> politician uh, that we know. But it was exactly because of that we thought, oh, he spent all this time in the Senate. This guy can herd the cats, right? This guy can crack the deals between the progressive left and his center voters, center, you know, um, centrists in the party and make something happen, you know. And he's kind of just um, not doing it. He, you know, he's not uh, pulling it off. In the way that I thought, maybe if if I had one hope for him, it was that he's like an old school politician who can kind of like um, get people to the table and be like Lyndon Johnson and you know bust some balls and sweet talk people and get it to happen. And then it's not happening. And so that brings me to the critique of the Democratic Party that people are, uh, you know, and I don't think this is just the conservative critique. It's just a critique, which is. You know, to what degree are we blaming our, uh, you know, the Joe Manchins and the Kyrsten Cinemas, And what degree are we blaming the progressive left for being, you know, recalcitrant and not being flexible and not seeing the long term implications for all of them? Right. I mean, they're they're all drawing lines in the sand, making it and they're going to ruin Joe Biden's presidency and probably themselves, be damaged if they don't agree on something and have something to sell in 2022.
3: And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation.
1: She said, Oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect. Her father, the Sheikh.
3: It's Madeline Barron from In The Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai.
1: Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away?
0: There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage.
3: And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.
2: In any event, I just want to read you something, and I feel uh, slightly embarrassed to be reading a uh, excerpt from a Ross that column, but... Um, But he is a smart guy and he's he's, you know, in the way he articulates this is interesting. And he's talking about, uh, you know, some of the academic jargon, like critical race theory that has, you know, become a big part of the conversation in in the progressive circles. And how is it becoming kind of like a um, is it something they want to embrace in the Democratic Party or is it something they need to. Distance themselves from because of its political problems. But he says um, Democratic politicians, I'm quoting, may need to decide what they actually think about the ideas that have swept elite cultural institutions in the last few years. Maybe those ideas are worth defending. Maybe books like White Fragility are worth celebrating. Maybe school superintendents who recommend their work should be praised for doing so. If so, Democrats should say so and fight boldly on that line. But if not, then in contested states facing Republican attacks on education policy and looking at the unhappy example of Virginia should strongly consider acknowledging what I suspect a lot of them and a lot of liberal pundits really think, that the immediate future of the Democratic Party depends on its leaders separating themselves to some extent from that academic jargon and progressive zeal. And I have to say that this is the conversation I have with people I know who are all ostensibly democrats and they range across different uh, you know across the spectrum from the very very progressive to the center left and i'm constantly in different kinds of conversations with friends about it you know and i know in, from my conversations with you Miriam that you know you have a very good understanding that, of why some of these you know critical race theory or some of the lessons that we draw from it that don't have to be called critical race theory, are important to kind of embrace and to change institutions, right? Even like ours, right? How do you feel about this idea of that the race part of the progressive movement has kneecapped the party uh, under which they're ostensibly part of? That's
0: another big question, but let me go back to what uh, Ross wrote in uh, that <laughs> column. <laughs> yeah. I just disagree with the formulation um, and the way that he's coming at it. You don't see uh, Democrats or progressives running around talking about critical race theory. what you what you do see is as a result of the police killing of George Floyd last summer, a massive movement. In the streets, online, all over the place, talking about the systemic racism in American society, in American institutions. And all you know, it's always referred to as a reckoning. And to me, as a you know, the conservative response to this to this uh, real uprising slash reckoning is building up this creepy sounding quote unquote critical race theory as some pernicious force that's making its way through American schools and attacking your babies and through colleges. And we must be very concerned about university campuses and, you know, trying to present it as really some sort of like pernicious cabal, um, that is trying to secretly and quietly, change the very fabric of American society rather than talking about what is really at stake here, which is this very public and very necessary and very overdue conversation about racial progress in this, in this country. So I disagree with the formulation that Democrats or progressives or whoever are out there pushing critical race theory. I think it was a very concerted effort on the part of Republican culture warriors who know that one of the best factors for turnout in elections is fear. And they're breeding this culture of fear over this scary-sounding critical race theory. Um, Not that I think it sounds scary, but it's the formulation makes it sound like official and sneaky in the way that they use it. It's very much uh, by design to get people scared. That's So let me just, I'll start, well, with, I I'll start with that. <laughs> I
2: agree with you, of course, because, yeah, I mean, this is politics. So, of course, they're going to take something like that and weaponize it and turn it into a political talking point. And by the way, just to give people historical context, this all began when Donald Trump was watching Fox News and heard about critical race theory for the first time, uh, and after which started the 1776 Commission to try to like do patriotic education, which on its is was also the most asinine and kind of like a pernicious sounding thing uh, I can imagine, like a re-education. I mean, basically everybody's accusing the other of uh, or trying to re-educate each other. But it is true that I have known what critical race theory is uh, without calling it critical race theory, you know, for the last many years. And we've been talking about it. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement is basically talking about critical race theory, but it's not talking about— It academically right so you're right to the degree that like the GOP is just sort of weaponized this sort of like bizarre sounding thing anything that's academic it's like you know imagine like it, it sort of strikes me as hilarious thinking about like imagine if like 40 years ago, somehow Foucault became part of our political dialogue. You know, it's like <laughs> something that popped exactly. out of like, you know, academia was suddenly, you know, circulating around. People are terrified when they think that because they think they have to go back to college or something. So it's like, um, you know, exactly. it's, it's obviously just a it's been weaponized. It's been weaponized. And I mean, that's American politics today. But um, And as you pointed out, and I think we talked about at the top here, You know, this Virginia race probably didn't really run on critical race theory. I mean, it probably had more to do with education and people wanting to, you know, have some agency over their children's education during this scary pandemic time. You know, I'm sure there were other buttons the guy was pushing that were typical, you know, fear-mongering conservative things. But as we also discussed, Terry McAuliffe, kind of a weak candidate. Now, I just want to uh, give you another theory that I have. Now, we everybody's on top of uh, Mark Zuckerberg nowadays in Facebook, and they're getting uh, spanked up and down the block, uh, and you know, frankly, rightfully so. But uh, as, as all the things we've learned and talked about on this podcast about. Um, how they're, you know, ruining our society and so forth. But so now, uh, just like when um, Cuomo legalized marijuana so that nobody would pay attention to all of his uh, sexual harassment allegations, <laughs> uh, you know, now Facebook has changed its name to Metaverse. And now, so Meta, no Meta, I should say. so And that's uh, based on this idea of a Metaverse. And so I'm familiar with Metaverses. I never called them that because my children, if, and if anybody listening to this has any kids like... You know, between the ages of like five and 12, you know what they are because your kids are in them all the time. That's like these are Roblox and uh, Minecraft and all these like alternative universes. And they hang out in them and talk to their friends and they walk around as if they're just walking down the street. But it's like a little kind of chintzy looking, uh, you know, Legos world that they're living in. And, and they all have different kinds of identities inside of them. You know, they're just hilariously ridiculous looking clothes. And they look like it's like you went to a rave or something back in 1995. And, you know, everybody's (laughs) dressed in tutus and stuff. Um, So and then I thought, well, that's interesting. What what might the future hold when racial politics are irrelevant? Because everybody's walking around as a giraffe or like Daffy Duck. And I thought, well, there's some, uh, you know, I'm looking for rays of hope here, Miriam. I'm looking for raises, but see, it's
0: not—it's not going to be like if if tech has taught us anything, it's that tech uh, manages to replicate a lot of the systemic uh, failures or problems that we have in society. Because what is tech but something created by people, and usually those people, um, at least if we look at the founders of. you know, the major tech companies that we have to live with today are, sorry to use your favorite phrase, but they are, you know, all white men and tend to replicate. For example, you know, the metaverse, I, I watched Zuckerberg's um, very bizarre, long uh, video announcement you know, introducing the metaverse to people and saying that he was going to be changing the name of Facebook to meta. And he presents this, such an idealized version of like, the metaverse is going to be amazing. It's going to revolutionize education. So for example, you, your kids don't have to read anymore about like the signing of the Magna Carta. I don't think he said that. That it's just to give you, you know, it's, it's, it's going off of what he said. Your kids can go into the metaverse and witness the signing of the Magna Carta, or they can see, you know, I don't know, the handover of Hong Kong to China, whatever you want to, whatever you want to talk about. Um, But the way that I think about it is like, oh my God, there's going to be a bunch of like Nazi sympathizers metaversing themselves to Germany in 1939. You're going to have a bunch of racists wanting to, you know, go to slave markets. Like horrific things are going to happen. The advantage of seeing a world only through the lens of like optimism and ideals is really a privilege afforded uh, to only one type of person, which is like a white cis hetero man. And that's going back to critical race theory and Black Lives Matter. And that's why, you know, Diversity is not just the catchword that it's become, but it's something very real because you bring in different perspectives and you can see the things that people with other experiences don't see. So yes, in an ideal world, you know, you can think about the metaverse as a place where we are all, you know, giraffes or elephants or cats or dogs or what have you. But in fact, anything that's created by humans is going to replicate the issues that we have in our regular human lives is my sad theory.
2: And there went all my hope for the future. Thanks a lot, Miriam. I was hoping, but if you see me in the metaverse, let's just say 10 years from now, we're walking down the street in the metaverse and you see a giraffe walking down and you're like, there's Joe, (laughs) you know, um, and it'll be sad. It'll be a sad giraffe, you know, with like a tear (laughs) ring. All around him will be like, um, you know, Nazis and um, uh, (laughs) all kinds of... uh, you know, horrible. Nazis um, and terrible people. Um, yeah. I like I like that we're <laughs> going down this road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um, so the metaverse doesn't exist yet, but I'm sure when it does, we'll all just jump right in it. Um, and, you know, we'll be have a newsroom, a hive newsroom. Uh, that'll be a like, giraffe at a typewriter, basically. You know what I mean? And it'll have, like—and <laughs> you'll come out of, like, one of those— um, you remember, like, one of those sort of like 1940s newspaper offices? I'm, you won't be smoking a cigar because you probably wouldn't like that, but you'll be like, <laughs> Where's my copy? And then a sad giraffe will come over and ha- hand you, like, you know, his story, and you'll, like, say, This is trash, do it again. Um, so I'm looking forward to that aspect of it. Let's talk for a minute. Uh, Let's go off of uh, these heavy topics for a minute and talk about uh, what it is we're watching on television so that we don't think about all these terrible things. I have been watching, just I'll start by saying I've been watching uh, Nine Perfect Strangers. Uh, Mm. Have you had any dealings with this television program?
0: No, but I've been curious about it. I know nothing about it, but it keeps popping up.
2: Oh, it's so great. Well, if you liked, you know, I'm sort of acting like an algorithm here. If you liked White Lotus and if you liked Big Little Lies and if you just generally like stories about like, um, uh, you know, entitled rich people um, going into some kind of like um, situation that they think is going to be great and then it exposes them as uh, all the horrors of existence are exposed by their interactions and Murder and intrigue and other kinds of things. Uh, well, nine perfect strangers fits into that general theme, and uh, it's a good one. It's, um, I would say, it's Vanity Fair adjacent, right? Um, and uh, it's, uh, but the core of it, and just to inform the people, the interesting plot twist is that um, Nicole Kidman is dosing all of these people that come to a spa with um, psychedelic mushrooms. And, uh, everybody's having like, um, kind of meltdowns and revelations and it's sort of, um, kind of like, um, you know, Timothy Leary as a kind of wellness spa operator. And, uh, but, you know, but, but looks like Nicole Kidman was way better. So, uh, that's my, um, recommendation there, but what do you, what have? what have you been into?
0: Well, wait—that's at the nexus of a lot of my interests, so I'm, I'm going to have to give that one, uh, give that one a look. Um, are you not watching Succession?
2: We shouldn't talk about it uh, wow. because I haven't caught up, and I'm behind everybody else. And I've been sort of, uh, you know, you can be shamed for not having, not being up to date on your Succession. And I, so I do carry that shame with me. This is part of the sad giraffe kind of uh, profile that i'm building for you um so uh but i feel no, like but, i yeah, don't you, even know who you clearly. are. tell me just um you know <laughs> but catch us up uh catch people up because everybody else is, has been following it
0: well i want to give you two answers because on the one hand obviously i'm watching succession um which i think this season started slowly like they got so into the micro of um you know, which kid is going to be named CEO. But there was so much talking that at a certain point in episode two, I was like, oh my God, I don't even care who's CEO anymore. Like, just please. I know it's the point of the show, but... Um, it got very frustrating and I needed them to move on, but the latest episode, um, was fantastic and full of drama and pathos and, uh, it was really great. Um, and then Insecure, the final season of Insecure started up again, Issa Rae's show, um, which is like my happy place. And then the final thing, sorry, I, I, I have to, I can't just give one answer, which I don't know, you might be interested in, maybe not. Um, I have an obsession with cults that you know about, so I just watched a cult documentary called i think it's called the way down and it's about um this crazy evangelical christian weight loss cult based in i want to say tennessee uh and it was it was it wasn't perfect and the story is quite tragic actually the i'm not giving anything away here but the founder of this cult died in a plane crash apparently while they were filming the documentary which adds like a weird layer to it but uh it's not perfect but it's good it's, it's it's worth watching if you like cults.
2: I love cults. <laughs> I and <know> you <laughs> um you know if they didn't all end the same way, I might like to be in one or even lead one, but they all kind of go <laughs> the wrong direction eventually <laughs> because they're all based on narcissistic personality disorder. Um but uh right. you know cults have obviously become a um, a big topic in our world because there's an entire political party that Uh, flirts with one and sometimes just is one. Um, You know, uh, I just want to close by saying something um, that I came upon recently. My daughter is a teenager and her school brought a speaker that the parents could go watch via Zoom. You know, her name's uh, Lisa Damore. She's a really smart person. She wrote a book called Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into adulthood. Now I'm not gonna talk about the seven transitions and, and about that, but she was just trying to get parents familiar with some of the emotional uh, challenges that teenage girls go through, which the closer you examine them, the more they're just like the emotional challenges that all of us go through, even when you're 50 and a man. But, <laughs> uh, but there's special ones for teenage girls. And, but one of the things she said that was that um, she didn't believe in the wellness industry. And she was critical of it because so often uh, the wellness industry that's cropped up is about uh, you should be happy all the time. And she said that this is not wellness. This is not true emotional wellness. True emotional wellness is that you can identify your own emotions and then act accordingly accordingly and that you're in touch with your emotions, whether they're good, bad, or ugly, right? And she said, for instance, let's just say there was a pandemic, and for a year and a half, you were really anxious and depressed. This would not be an an unusual or uh, problematic reaction. This would be the appropriate reaction. That means you know that your emotions are actually accurate. They're an accurate measure of what you're experiencing. So, And I was thinking about that because you know there's a weird there's a weird um, aspect to our current society which is that in these shows like nine perfect strangers and even ideas about cults are that we should be in a state of bliss right but there's all these problems out there and if somehow we could mitigate them all or just ignore them uh, and not have a reaction to them or kill our reactions to them we'd be happy and of course that's not true and um I don't know where I'm going with this, I'm just free but like, I just thought I'd leave people with that idea because, um, you know, I think uh, as we look at the news, let's just say the Virginia race, and we wake up this morning and we're filled with um, dread and anxiety, well, that's not an un- inappropriate reaction. And um, of course, I'm going to watch a bunch of TV shows tonight to not think about it. But uh, but we do have to deal with those emotions and we do have to become more uh, these things that critical race theory talks about, which seem theoretical and scary and academic are actually just feelings that we need to be coping with in our society. We have to address them. We can't make them go away or put them in a box or put a um, white cape over our head so that nobody see. Oh, whoops. Uh, Yeah, it turns out you're a racist. Okay, so. Um, I'm just saying I wanted to leave people with that, uh, a little nugget of, um, personal, uh, philosophy there.
0: You know, I think you shared that philosophy with John Lennon. I keep on meaning to look up the quote and you might know this better than I do, but he had something like that where, you know, it is normal to feel happy and it is normal to feel sad. We don't freak out when it rains. We just see it as a kind of normal thing, uh, that happens with the weather and you have to, yeah, take your anxieties and sadness that way too.
2: Yeah, feelings, man. Nothing more than feelings. <laughs> um, I may that's a song. Let's think about writing that song. I've heard um, of it. <laughs> Miriam, thanks so much for coming on Inside the Hive. Thank you for having me here. It has been delightful to have you here. You're so insightful, smart, and you know emotionally in touch. And I'm not just saying that because I want you to give uh, me a raise right here on the podcast. But um, (laughs) it is uh, it's a real uh, pleasure to have you um, as a colleague. And um, we're going to have you back here again in the future. And let's make it happen.
0: Thank you, Joe. Truly a pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
2: That's our podcast this week. Thank you for joining us, Miriam Elder. Thanks to our producer, Brett Fuchs. Thanks to the good people at Cadence 13 who helped make this happen. If you like what you're hearing, if you want more conversation, hit subscribe. Come back next week. Emily Jane Fox is going to be here, my co-host. Please support our sponsors the way they support this podcast. and We will see you right here.
1: Hi, I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, along with Michael Calore. Each week on Gadget Lab, we tackle the biggest questions in the world of technology with reporters from inside the Wired newsroom. We cover everything from personal tech. Because asking people to put a computer on one of the most personal and sensitive parts of your body is just like, it's a big bet. Broader trends in Silicon Valley. There are just so many laid-off workers out there that workers just don't have a lot of power in the exciting and terrifying world of AI.
0: It's inevitable that the internet is going to be filled with, like, AI-generated nonsense, and so he just thinks he might as well make some money playing a small part in a thing that he sees as unstoppable. Wired's Gadget Lab is here to keep you informed and to keep it real.
2: The entire point of the phone should be on some level to hate it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) New episodes of Gadget Lab are available weekly wherever you get your podcasts.